0: Uh, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter three, starting at verse 12, and we're going to f- go through the entire chapter. So as you turn there, uh, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for being exactly who you promised you said you would be. Thank you for your goodness and revealing that to us throughout history. Um, and allowing us to partake in that, to do your kingdom work here on earth as it is done and accomplished in heaven. So lead us, go before us as we study your word today. I pray that it convicts us where we need convicting, that it comforts us where we need comforting, and that it, it, it empowers us to continue going forward in this life. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so I wanted to start off with just reading the passage that we're going over today in its entirety. So, um, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you're there already, uh, please follow along. Starting at verse 12, chapter three of Philippians. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity of the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That is the word of the Lord. So, brief to get you up to speed on where we're at in Paul's letter. So obviously this is written by the Apostle Paul, formerly known as a, uh, as Saul of Tarsus. So he writes this letter from a Roman prison to a community of believers in a Roman colony called Philippi. He writes this letter 10 to 12 years after he planted the church um, the church there with Timothy um, in Acts 16. If you want to read then uh, how that happens, you can go to Acts 16 to figure that out. So this letter is primarily one of thanksgiving and an encouragement to rejoice. So if you want to figure out how to have joy in the midst of your suffering, go to Philippians. Philippians. This is, this is your letter. I would encourage you to memorize the entire letter in its entirety. <clears throat> so the primary reason for Paul's thanksgiving is the faithful fellowship the Philippians had with him during his time as a missionary and prisoner through consistent prayer and the provision of resources. So to get us up to speed uh, to our passage today... Here's what we've seen in Philippians so far. In chapter one, Paul explains how he is able to rejoice in his circumstances of suffering. He is able to walk in that joy through maintaining the attitude of thanksgiving, consistently praying, magnifying Christ in both his life and his death, enduring in this life for the sake of seeing others in the faith, or others mature in the faith, and constantly encouraging them to remain united in that faith as they are to suffer for the sake of Christ in the same way Paul has. And you, and you get that, uh, I think, in verse 31 of chapter one. <clears throat> and then chapter two, he, he begins this beautiful encouragement and this beautiful exhortation to have Christ-like humility. So he begins by defining what humility means in verses one through four, and then he presents three examples of humility, uh, beginning with the humiliation of the Lord, Jesus himself, and then two faithful brothers, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then we get to chapter three, uh, verses one through 11, Paul presents a stark contrast between his previous persecution of the church and his present pursuit of knowing Christ. From his uh, previous persecution of the church to his present pursuit of knowing Christ. In verses one through 11, Paul willingly counts all of his reasons to boast in the flesh, everything that made him a promising young scholar and Jewish rabbi and perfect citizen, everything that would cause him to stand self-righteous above and before everyone else by a long shot, he counts all that as rubbish. That, that word in the Greek is, it, it, it communicates dung, gutter garbage, less than meaningless in order to have what? What could possibly be better than four astounding historic birth privileges and three very significant law-abiding achievements? What can be better than that? We see, that in, in, we see the answer in verse eight, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul is expressing an intense desire to know Christ in that passage, to be found in him and his righteousness, conformed to his death, and to be glorified with him in the end. Paul's desire to know Christ seeps through these pages. But I want you to think about something for a moment. Does desire alone, simply desire, does it accomplish anything? Absolutely not. It is foolish to think so. At the end of Hebrews 5, going into chapter 6, the author reveals to us that there were some believers who should have been teaching already. They should have been teachers. They needed someone to teach them the basic principles of God's revelation again. They needed milk, not solid food, as an infant does, because solid food was for the mature. For those who have been trained to distinguish between good and evil, he then encourages them to leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, to move on with that foundation already laid. So, I have a few questions for you before we get into the the outline and into our passage. Question number one How long have you been saved? Question number two, no matter the length of time you consider considered yourself a follower of Christ, do you consider yourself a mature one? Do you? Next question, what type of attitude do you have towards your salvation? Are you doubtful or questionable about it? Do you say things like, well, I think I'm saved. I mean, I serve the church, I pray, I read the scriptures, I'm involved. Actually, yeah, I think I, I, think I am. Or are you overly confident about your salvation and say things like, it doesn't matter how much I do or don't do, nothing will ever pluck me from that hand of God. Or do you have a spirit of humility towards God, God's work in your life and say something like, well, Chris, I'm not where I should be, but hallelujah, I'm not where I used to be. Now going back to our passage by the time we get to Philippians 3 verse 11 Paul is so direct about his salvation in describing his confidence in the righteousness provided to him in Christ that there may have been a natural tendency to question to question him if he thinks he's already obtained the fullness of it has it Paul been glorified already Yet, what we get is Paul providing us with an inspiring and instructive path for growing in spiritual maturity in our passage today. So, in this passage, we will observe four practices four practices that highlight how to walk in steadfast, uncompromising maturity in order to resemble a citizen of heaven. Let's look at that outline together. I titled this message The Goal of the Christian Life Steadfast Maturity. The four practices are as follows. Number one, an unrelenting aim. We acknowledge as believers that we have not reached full maturity, yet we press on and do not relent or waver from the goal at hand. And then point number two, a devotion to mentor. We refuse, as believers, we refuse to keep the prize to ourselves and devote ourselves to imitate uh, those before us and mentor those after us. And then, point number three: a mourning over error. We mourn and grieve over those, over, the, uh, over those among us, among us believers that profess Christ, yet live a life of self-indulgence and selfishness. And then, lastly, point number four will be an eager expectation. We eagerly wait for a true Savior who will perfect us and reign for all of eternity. So, this passage. This passage will show us how we can stand firm in an age that is fleeting, that is passing away, that is completely at odds with both Christ and his body. And so we'll begin, so this, this answers the, the following attitude. If, you're, if you have this question, or if you have these questions and have this attitude, this passage is for you. This is an attitude, it addresses, it addresses this. Chris, I want to grow. I want to mature in the faith, but even more than that, I want to stand firm. I'm done tiptoeing around, fully submitting to Jesus and serving a local body of believers. How can I? Where do I start? If you're there, this this is the passage for you. So we'll begin there in verse 12 for point one. Verse twelve: Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So right from the get-go, Paul humbly acknowledges he has not reached full Christian maturity; he has not been glorified yet. The "it" in in that in that verse uh, refers to the resurrection of the dead. Obtained we obtain this with complete and full knowledge of the savior being perfected or complete in him is knowing and seeing him truly as he is right now in heaven. So when Paul says, I have not obtained it, he means that he has not reached complete unity in Christ in glory. We see, we see this a little uh, described a little further in First John, uh, John chapter 3, verses two and three, where he says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when, we, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this whole fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So Christ's resurrection from the dead allows us to lay hold of that resurrection ourselves in him and in only him. So Paul's unrelenting determination is to press on. But how can he? What motivates him to pursue complete unity with Christ? We see the answer at the end of verse 12. The ultimate reason for Paul's pursuit is the apprehension of Christ. The ultimate reason for Paul's pursuit of the apprehension of Christ is Christ's apprehension of Paul. Something happened on that road to Damascus and he hasn't forgotten it. Something happened and maybe something happened to you and maybe you strayed away. But, but think back on your road to Damascus. Paul is reflecting on his, something happened there. And what happened is that divine grace became the source and goal for our pursuit. I love and show grace because I've been loved and have been shown grace. I've been captured by a love so deep it transformed my my mind, my heart, and now determines my every action. This is what Paul is reflecting on. It reminds me of a time I went to Lake Casitas, um, and I was riding around the, 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 the lazy river, and they had the, the inner tubes, and I was, you know, smaller than I am now, um, and I was sitting on it, and I, my head fell through, so my body fell through, but my legs were still over the inner tube, and for some reason, maybe it was panic, my legs stayed locked, so I was drowning, I was upside down drowning and I was, I could just feel myself just reaching for anything, maybe a plant or a tree. Maybe I was close to the edge. Maybe I was doomed by being, by floating down the middle. But all of a sudden I caught hold of someone's hand and they caught hold of mine. And for some reason, my legs relaxed and I was able to just slip through the inner tube and come out, out of the water. That is, that is the picture of what has happened to Paul. He grabbed hold of the Savior and it allowed him to never let, let him go. After, once I, once I came, uh, came out of the water, I just wanted to follow the guy around. It's like this, this guy, like, I know he has my back. I know he will save me if I, if I uh, slip again. You see this happen with children too. Whether they're at the beach or at an amusement park, if they get lost or they get hit by a wave and they start crying, they're shaken up. They don't want to go out to the water. They want to stay next to mom or dad. That apprehension of the child is what Paul is holding onto. That's what we need to hold onto. Oftentimes we have a theology of God is good to me and not God is good for me. I need to seek God for what He will do for me, for what He would do for me, but not simply because of who He is. Paul tells us that he hasn't reached the end goal yet, but that doesn't discourage him. He's still on the move. Let's read thirteen through fourteen. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here Paul shines light on the fact that even though he was a prominent leader in the church, his heart is still humbled by the gospel. His heart is still humbled and adored and he adores what the way that Christ has apprehended him. He forgets as he runs. If you reflect on all the, whether they're horror movies or action movies, and there's a person running from a bad guy and they keep turning around. And it's, you can, it's obvious that it's hindering their progress. And if you're like me, you're probably like, why, what are you doing? And then they trip and then it's all over. But you're like, you need to keep your eye on the rescue, on the way out. If you turn to the left or to the right or behind you, you will fall, you will lose progress. So, Paul here fulfills all of our hopes and dreams in seeing that hero get away. To get away from the bad guys, what exactly was he leaving behind? What was he leaving behind? Paul had a two part past, depending on what perspective you look at his life. On one one side, he was this promising young rabbi, on the other side, he was a persecutor of the church. those describe both perspectives that you may come to faith. Whether you were extremely religious and knew all the ins and outs of Christianity and say, I don't need to grow. I'm good, I'm fine. Or you may approach your salvation and say, I could never, God would never accept me. Paul here diminishes all of that. He was both the promising young rabbi, very religious, and persecutor, executioner of the church, of Christ's body. But no matter what, the race doesn't end until you see Christ face to face. Paul finished his race in 2 Timothy 4 in his last letter to his beloved son in the faith where he says, I have finished the race. I have finished the course. Why? Why was he able to say that? because he knew he was going to die soon. That was it. That was all. That's all she wrote for him. But if you read the New Testament and you realize that his letters to these bodies of believers, to these local fellowships in different areas of the Mediterranean, addressing what they were struggling with, and Paul says, press on. That word forgetting Forgetting is not just a simple, passive loss of memory. It is an active, continuous discipline of the mind and heart set on the alternative. And what is that alternative? All his thoughts, emotions, and decisions are focused on and and fixed on this one thing. That one thing is described in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So while imperfect, while we may be imperfect, this is not an excuse to remain complacent. Whatever your background is, Paul just explained that he was at both sides of the spectrum, and even still, it is not an excuse to remain complacent. That word heavenward, or um, depending on which translation you have, that word will, that description will be different. It It indicates both the direction of the call, where you're going, and the origin of the call, where it came from. See, God's call initiates our relationship with Christ, beginning with conversion, and continues into future communion with Christ after death to enjoy the prize. That word prize notes an award for an exceptional performance, but that's not what Paul means here. Paul does not point to his own circumstances or his own achievements and says, this is my prize because of what I've done. He draws on what God has accomplished in drawing Paul to himself. That word call implies something that will happen in the future the already but not yet. The attainment of the prize of being with Christ at the end of the race, finally being united with Christ, is the fulfillment of God's call at the beginning of the race. It is complete, it is made whole, it is fulfilled. So here's Paul's attitude, whether the finish is being with with Christ at death, as he explains in chapter 1, verse verse 23, to depart and be with Christ, or the return of Christ from heaven, as we'll see later in verse 20. Paul is determined to run the race well, no matter what. Are you? Have you been? So let's recap Point number one, the first practice of walking in steadfast, uncompromising maturity is having an aim that does not waver. Because if the aim doesn't waver, you will not waver, regardless of the the shifting circumstances around you. Our circumstances may change, but the goal doesn't and hasn't throughout all the age. Now, Paul turns to direct the Philippians to take the same view of these things through humble discipleship. Point number two, a devotion to mentor. Let's read uh, verses 15 through 16. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard in which we have attained. Is this a contradiction? Depending on how you read, um, depending on, on how you, your, your bio, like depending on what translation you have, um, will depend on the, the words that are, that are used here. So Paul uses the same Greek word for perfect and mature. I know that the New King James uses mature um, in, in verse 15 where he says, let us therefore as many as are mature have this attitude. So since Paul uses his same word, how do we reconcile what seems to be a contradiction? So Paul uses the fact that he has not attained perfection in verse 12 when addressing the issue of spiritual perfectionism, when looking to our own self-righteousness. He's saying like, I'm not perfect. I haven't attained it simply because of my own self-righteousness. So that's, that's how he uses that word. Um, the word is um, in teleo that, in, that, uh, in verse 12. And then here in verse 15, he uses, it, um, he uses it to address himself and those he's with as mature believers. They're grown. One commentator puts it like this. So depending um, regarding... Christian perfection. Uh, One commentator put it like this, Christian perfection consists of Christian imperfection. And I'll explain what that, the the commentator further explains it like this. By humbly confessing that we are imperfect and in need of a savior, this will bring us to Christ in whom we are perfected in the end. So we are perfected through our submission and recognizing our imperfections. Confessing. Hopefully that makes sense, <clears throat> but that's how we reconcile this this uh, dilemma of Paul using the same Greek word to describe two different things. <clears throat> this happens. This this growing in Christ likeness happens as we are being being conformed to the image of Christ through the attitude that Paul had, and what was that attitude? We saw that in in point one. You have to acknowledge your dependency. Recognize that you haven't reached it yet. You have, not become, you have not been made perfect in Christ yet. And forgetting your past devotions and your past life. As well as keeping, keeping your eyes set on the prize. This, this embodies the attitude of humility that, that Paul is explaining here. The attitude goes like this. God, I need you. I haven't made it yet. So I can't do this on my own. I am not focused on where I once was, but my heart is set on heaven. So build me up while I'm here. This attitude is what Paul is encouraging them to have because it makes Christ central through it all. How? If we look at your past, when you first confessed that Jesus was Lord, at that moment, you were justified. And in your present, you are still confessing that both in word and in action. You are being sanctified. And then lastly, your future. That confession will f- be fully culminated and you will be glorified. Christ become therefore becomes central throughout your entire Christian walk. So that's why Paul is expressing and encouraging them to have this type of attitude. Not everyone has this attitude of humility because Paul, Paul says that some may have a different attitude, yet Paul, it leaves the changing of people's minds up to God. He's not referring to some heretical point here. He's not saying that there's some heresy going on in the church because he would have fully addressed it, and he does later in this passage. But right now he knows that true unity will be achieved only by God revealing themse- himself to them, not by, not by his persuasive uh, uh, rhetorical power. Paul is not demanding total absolute agreement on every point, but he places his confidence in God's work in the community. An example of this is um, differences throughout church history primarily through the view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Different churches, different denominations, view both of those things vastly different, but it's a secondary issue. And so in that light, Paul believes that they will be drawn back to the attitude that glorifies God the most, rather than just bickering over these minor differences. And the attitude that glorifies God the most is a humble submission So there's no need to fight over or worry about these minor issues. So what do we do instead? When that comes up, what do we do? Verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. You see, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to have the attitude of spiritual longing. At this point in your own faith journey. You have reached a level of understanding of the faith that will determine your future belief and behavior. Think about what you know about Jesus so far. Think about what you know about his word so far. Are you able to explain the gospel in a coherent, clear way, whether it's a six-year-old or a 60-year-old? Are you able to adequately explain it to possibly contribute to their salvation? Once you reflect on that, will you pursue further growth or stand on the sidelines? What have they attained? What what have they attained? What have they grasped so far? So at this point in the letter, we, we are able to observe that they have attained and shared partnership in the gospel. We see that in chapter one, verse five, that they have partaken in Holy Spirit, in beautiful Holy Spirit fellowship. We see that in verse one of chapter two, and they have participated in Christ's sufferings. We see that in chapter three, verse 10. He's saying, let this, let what you have attained so far, let what you know so far about your Lord propel you forward, provoke you to seek maturity and growth. He's saying, because of what you've experienced so far, don't get burnt out. Don't get burnt out and stop the race. Allow the hard things in ministry to draw you closer to those in ministry with you because you're not doing it alone. This doesn't just refer to pastors or leaders in the church because he says as many as are mature. If you're a mature believer, if you, if you uh, when I asked that question earlier, and you still, you consider yourself a mature believer, if you're not engaging in your local fellowship, it's time to tap in. It's time, it's time. The people next to you need you. The people above you and, bef- and, and behind you need you. It's time to get involved. If you're not a mature believer, don't let this discourage you. This is why we're going through these practices. This is why Paul writes this this portion in his letter. So this is what it takes, which is what Paul leads to. This This is what it takes, which is what Paul leads to in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. See, Paul includes himself. He's drawing together the friends of the cross before he refers to the enemies of the cross in verse 18, in the very next verse. Paul does not give this self-portrait of his own pursuit. He draws on a common one. I don't know if many of you have seen a ma- like an actual professional marathon, but the, 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 the most elite marathon runners don't run by themselves. They run with, I don't know the exact number, but they, they run with people who help them pace They run with six to nine other people to help them continue going forward so that they don't he doesn't have to worry, he or she doesn't have to worry about any other obstacles or distractions because his the people running next to him got him or her. I would encourage you, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, do not underestimate the power of an example whether you're a believer or not. Whether, if, if you're an unbeliever and you send your, your kids or you, you want them to engage in church activities, there's a reason for that because it implies, or you're implying that, that they will have a better example next to them that they get to follow if it's not you. This is why you seek to encourage them. This is why you pay to have them go to campouts with other Christians because Everyone is being influenced by something or someone and you just hope that the influence is positive and more so Christ-like. One of the worst things I heard growing up is why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your cousin? Paul doesn't take on the role as a perfect example, but as a mentor If you've said that to anyone younger than you, whether they're your kids or anything like that, apologize. It hinders their progress. Not Not only does it cause them to resent whoever that other family member is, but now they're the standard. Now their sibling or their cousin or their deadbeat uncle is their standard. And it is an imperfect one. And so Paul doesn't put himself as the perfect example, but as a mentor. That word mentor is, or that word mentor is actually the only time that we see it, not just in the Bible, but in all of Greek literature. Paul essentially makes it up to, to, to explain something very, very important. That, that word means fellow imitators. He is urging them to join with him in his own journey with Christ. He says, "Follow me as I follow Christ." <clears throat> uh, I wanted to use an example, but I feel like it's going to make me cry, but bear with me. Um, I am incredibly excited to be a father so excited that when specifically when Pastor Dave comes up to me and, and greets my wife and I <clears throat> and he asks about how we're doing I'm just so excited I'm beaming and one thing that Pastor Dave says that, that, that resonates with me so much is, is that he says I'm excited to see you as a father and that just it breaks me down every time. And so that feeling, that feeling that, that I have, that I, that I receive every time we have that interaction, I have that same feeling in a different way for believers when they're growing, when they're seeking to, to, to know the savior more and more. Do you? Are you engaged and involved so much so in the church, in the local body of believers that you have that same attitude? I had a friend who, from high school, he was a friend of a mutual friend that I haven't seen literally since high school, 12 years ago. And he he messaged me. on on Instagram, and he he explained, hey, hey," I won't get into the details, but he explained that he needed help. He wanted to know where to start with God and Jesus and the Bible. What is this religion thing? And so I shared the gospel with him immediately because I don't know if he was gonna reply after that as coherently and clear as I possibly could. Two days later, he came and partook in the festivities on Sunday and was baptized. And I'll mention, I'll mention Pastor Dave again because even though he wasn't in the water, I, I looked over and, and saw Pastor Dave and his smile, his smile did it for me. He was proud. He was excited, not just to see my friend Daniel baptized, but to see me being faithful. It was a glorious day, but we press on. This is the attitude that Paul is explaining here. So going back to the example that I used with with being excited about being a father, I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason Pastor Dave says what he says with wanting, uh, being excited to see me as a father. And the reason for that is because the presence of new life the presence of new life should radically change each and every one of you and the people around you. I will have a new life. Raise, help, build up a new life. And that's exactly what discipleship is. Do you feel that excited about the people around you growing? Find people, if not, if the question to that is no, if not, find people who have been captured, absolutely enamored by the gospel. And I promise you that it'll happen. That's just how God works. Timothy and Epaphroditus were these types of believers for Paul, and he delighted to see them served. He delighted when they served him because he knew that they were being faithful. So to recap, point number two, the second practice of walking in steadfast, uncompromising maturity is having a deep devotion to mentor those around you. It'll keep you humbled before Christ and humbled before those around you. That leads us to point number three, a mourning over error. Be watchful. If you're not walking according to the pattern you've seen in Christ and his people, you will be walking according to those who seek to please themselves, and it breaks our hearts when we see this happen, and we see it happen here with Paul, verse eighteen. For many walk of um, whom, for many walk of whom I often told you and tell you now, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. I like how the uh, the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts this. Uh, translates this verse. It says, for I have told you often before and I say it again with tears in my eyes that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. By using the word for walk here again, he presents the opposite manner. He presents the alternative. You live either a Christ-centered life or a self-centered one. And we know We all know that how detrimental and destructive that can be. So this, this denial of the cross is not so much a theological one, but an ethical one. With, With using the word walk, he means that your manner of living, your ethics, your morality, you're showing that you are actually an enemy of the cross of Christ. You are the enemy of God. That word for weeping notes um, it describes to weep as a sign of pain or grief. Peter uses this word in Mark fourteen verse seventy two after remembering when Jesus said about what Jesus said about him denying him three times. He sobbed violently. Paul reserves such an outpouring of emotion for those, who have, for those who have professed belief in Christ. Paul would most likely be sorrowfully affected by the injury to the church wrought by professing Christians. The church is more often destroyed from the inside than from the outside. It, is, it becomes rotten if people inside the church if a local fellowship begins to to grow self-centered people. This is what Paul mourns over. His words are harsh, but his heart is broken. Paul uses the same verb in his second letter to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 2.4, where he writes, I wrote you out of out of great distress and anguish of heart. And with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul in Roman chains writes as tears fall from his face and is heavily grieved, not because of the betrayal of Rome, of which he was a loyal citizen up until he got saved, but because of the betrayal going on inside the church. so in the midst of of pastors, of elders, of believers, of professing believers, sinning in the church, destroying it from the inside out, with the introduction of, of social media, we see this almost multiple times a day. I would encourage you, I have some encouragement for you if you feel If you feel discouraged, I would ask you, don't be calloused. Do not have a hardened heart towards the church. Mourn and weep over those who have strayed away to benefit themselves. You may have experienced a family member or a close friend completely deconstruct, leave the faith to pursue their self-indulgences to benefit themselves, but I would encourage you, do not be calloused, mourned, mourn and weep over them because through that, through that response, it'll show the deep love you have for them as we see here from the apostle Paul. So what exactly characterizes these enemies of the cross so we can properly diagnose them? How do we know? Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So let's break down each of these phrases so that we can adequately diagnose our enemies. Because oftentimes they'll, they go unnoticed until they've shredded the church whose end is destruction, that word telos, um, is the same word that Paul uses referring to maturity. This may be a play on words that Paul uses in his writing, and he's communicating this. As believers, so as believers, we have a destiny set before us of life and life abundantly in Christ. That is our end, that is our telos. And we accomplish that through humility and suffering. And so, what he's saying, he's that your end is destruction. Your telos is death and destruction through pride and your self indulgence. We all have an end. Whether you're going to be fully glorified in Christ, never, never to taste the, the, the sting of death or sin ever again, or you will be in the midst of it forever because of your pride and your self-indulgence. The next phrase, whose God is their appetite, that word appetite, um, or these people, they serve their lustful desires and hold it supreme as if it was their God. This happens whether through gluttony or sexual immorality. Paul writes, he addresses this issue also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where, where people were actually saying, well, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So my body, because, or similar to how, when I feel hungry, I satisfy that, that urge. Similarly, when I have a sexual urge, I'm gonna fulfill it. They were saying sexual gratification is for my body and my body is for sexual gratification. My higher authority is my appetite. That is, that is, that is uh, a characteristic of these enemies of the cross. The next one is that um, whose glory is in their shame. They show off things for which they should be ashamed of. They are proud of their sin. They expect you to be Impressed. They expect you to be impressed by their idolatry, their sexual immorality, their greed, or whatever the sin is. Because to the world, it's lovely. They flaunt it in the church, expecting us to be impressed. But we know. And then lastly, that they set their minds on earthly things. This means that their commitment is on their earthly circumstances not the upward call of God in Christ as Paul has already emphasized back in verse 14. Paul also says something similar in Romans 8 verse 5. For those, for, uh, Romans 8 verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So these are the people who are not just consumed with the world's problems, but also its Delights what the world loves to see, what the world is struggling to to handle and to fix. Their thought life, their affections, and their actions are consumed with what's going on in the world. So if you remember the analogy of running, Paul uses uh, back in verse 13, picture the enemies of the cross as those who drop out of the race. They drop out of the race to stop and enjoy the refreshments and yet never continue because they're distracted and refuse to suffer for the gospel. They don't like the pain. They don't see the benefit of it. Why should I keep running? I lost already. The world is against me and they're just enjoying the lemonade on the, on the side. So in their deliberate refusal to suffer with Christ. They have separated themselves from salvation in Christ. If you refuse to suffer, you miss out on being conformed into the image of God's son. This, this is something worth grieving over. So let's recap point number three. The third practice to grow in steadfast, uncompromising maturity is to mourn over the severe moral errors of those who profess the name of Christ in order to maintain a humble heart and recognize when they're in your midst. Recognize when they try to, to, to become your friend so that they may uh, provoke you to do the same thing. That leads us to our last point, point number four, an eager expectation. So Paul here now presents a sharp contrast between the self-indulgent professing Christians and the people who are eagerly expecting the ultimate victory of the Savior. our last two verses for tonight, starting in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So this goes all the way back to Paul's encouraging words in verse 17. We live now We live now because of a secured future. Through this secured future, it it shines a bright light on the present, the here and now to guide our moral choices. That word citizenship, it refers to a crucial force that regulates its, its citizens. Classifying them as citizens under a sovereign power under the sovereign power of the government. Here's why this is so important. Um, That that phrase, eagerly wait for a savior, Paul is addressing Roman nationalism. Caesar Augustus at the time was acclaimed to be the savior of the world. Yet Paul redirects their allegiance from the savior in Rome to the savior in heaven the residents in Philippi would look to the emperor in Rome. Uh, they would look to him to use his power to solve their problems, to satisfy their appetites, to rescue them from trouble and to protect them from danger. Does that sound familiar? Just as Philippi is a Roman colony, as, or just as Philippi, which was a Roman colony, was a miniature Rome, The church is a little colony of the kingdom of heaven. When you come to church, when you partake in your local fellowship, you are engaging in heaven work. So we look to Christ to not just solve our problems, satisfy our appetites, rescue us from trouble and protect us from danger, but to make all things new according to his sovereign rule. That's our primary and our immovable hope. It will never be taken away because it's sealed by blood, by perfect blood. Prophesied blood. The, this the, our Christian community and every single Christian community that has ever existed is dominated by this hope. It's propelled forward by this hope. So once that is established in our hearts, it is at that point. It is at that point that we will realize that our savior will one day return and execute his power to solve our problems, to satisfy, us, to satisfy us completely by knowing and seeing him as he is and rescue us from our pain and trouble, and then protect us from the schemes of the flesh, the devil, and the world. But it is first accomplished by him and secured in heaven. Then you reap the benefits the manner in which he will accomplish all of this. I've already kind of alluded to, but Paul states it explicitly in verse 21 when he says, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. First Corinthians 15, the resurrection passage, Verse 49 says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly or the fleshly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. No longer corrupt, dishonorable, and weak, but incorruptible, glorious, and powerful. No matter how glorious Caesar was, no matter how glorious any other military is or, 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 or president or any other leader, it is no match for the Savior and the Lord from heaven. Paul's hope is not for redemption from creation. He's not just seeking to get out of here. He's not seeking, um, he's, he's not just hoping for redemption from creation and all its troubles before the redemption of creation. Creation will burn, it will be done away with, but it will be made new and so will you. Creation will be made new, not discarded. Similar to Jesus' resurrected body. What they thought they were doing was harming him. But what they did was prepared him to just simply unclothe himself of his beaten and broken body and to put on his resurrected body. This is the story of salvation. He came to share in our suffering so that we will share in his glory He became like us in order to transform us to become like him. I don't know why I added this to my notes, but it just, yeah, it just spoke to me. Um, The apostle Paul, just think about this for a moment. The apostle Paul was welcomed into heaven by the cheers of those he martyred. Can you believe that? They cheered and welcomed and rejoiced the person who killed them, who put them there. That is only possible because of the gospel. That type of reconciliation is only possible with God sending his son. So to recap, our last point. The fourth practice to grow in steadfast, uncompromising maturity is to maintain an eager expectation of the Savior who will subject everything under His sovereign rule and glorify us as he is glorified right now. So for the sake of being repetitive, let's just recap every point. If the question is, Chris, how do I grow? I've been been a Christian. I've been professing Christ for so long and I feel like I'm stagnant. I feel like I'm stuck. How do I grow? Here we have seen four practices. Practice number one, keep your eyes on the prize. It's not yours. It's not yours to accomplish. It's been accomplished. Just join the race. Believe Point number two, you have to devote yourself to mentorship. Are you discipling someone? Are you, dis- are you being discipled by somebody? It won't happen unless you're engaging in that type of activity. It's not that easy. We refuse to keep the prize to ourselves and devote ourselves to imitate those before us and mentor those mentor those after us. Practice number three, you have to mourn over error and sin going on in the church. It is less loving for you to just pass by, to punch your, your meal ticket and head on out once church is over. After we sing the doxology. It's not enough. It's not enough. You see, grace, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. And then the third point is, or the last point, is that you have to expect something. Something that will never be taken away from you. Something that is already secured for you and the people you love the most. That is the entire goal of remaining steadfast and growing in uncompromising maturity. And not just to grow in maturity, but that is the goal of the Christian life. If you ask yourself, "Why oh, I didn't sign up for this. If you profess belief in Christ and trust in him, you did because he has commanded you to bear your cross as he did. But you are not left alone. You have an entire history of believers who died, who were martyred, who sought to grow in likeness the same way we seek to do so. So, if if it's hard to to grasp heaven, it'll always be hard. But um, there is this this beautiful poem by this this band called uh, Beautiful Eulogy. Um, it was kind of like an interlude in their in their in their album. It's called Acquired in Heaven. And I'll read that. So I'll ask you to, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read it and then we're gonna go straight into prayer. Just praying us out. I'm gonna pray us out. But I would ask you to, to bow your heads like you're praying. Bow your, bow your heads and close your eyes as I read this poem and just envision every single word. Just envision it. And then I'll, I'll pray us out. On that day, we will sing of the name more excellent than angels, a purified bride, a refined heart, speech, and mind, where unity and fellowship are perfected in the church, where divine love rests in the hearts of the inhabitants of the new earth and receive a crown only to cast it down at the feet of the resurrected Jesus in a perfect ceaseless form of worship, singing, glory, To the liberating king who came not to conquer kingdoms, but conquer hearts and restore men back to what they were intended for. An escape from this life marked by anguish, a great fountain of love that flows from heaven's gates awaits us. You can take this world, its joys and its fleeting pleasures, but give us Jesus, our future hope and our greatest treasure the fulfillment of our expectation with nothing to separate us, nothing to hinder the saints from the greatest expression of adoration. We will be finally fit with language to describe with the right words to express the richness of eternal possession, the blessing of inheritance where God will be seen through purified eyes, purged from the sin that blinded us from viewing God as glorified, where love will be expressed with a perfect affection. Until then, until then, we wait with expectation for all that we will acquire in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are glorious, you are good, you are faithful and you are forever worthy to be praised. I thank you so much for for revealing yourself and inspiring Paul to pen these letters or to pen these words in these letters to churches that were struggling, to churches that were faithful, to churches that needed encouragement. And so Father, as we reflect on what we have read and studied tonight, Help us and provoke us to seek each and every one of our practices today. Today, help us seek that today with those around us, with those that are being raised behind us and those and to encourage those who are struggling and suffering because Father, that is what you have saved us for to grow in Christlikeness and to reflect on the beauty of the good news that uh, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save that which is lost. And hallelujah, we are lost no longer. So help us use that to propel us forward to love with a love that is divine as we seek to fill heaven with previously lost souls as we were. Father, help, help, help us have that as our motivation to know you more and to love you better. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.